second speaker, Father Christopher Smith, is an increasingly rare thing. Obviously, there's a lot of people that know Father Smith. Um, no. Um, no, and that is he is a native of Greenville. And he was received into the Catholic Church here at St. Mary's when he was 13 years old after having been raised as a good Baptist. And after graduating from Southside High School, he went to Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia. And after a year after graduation, he did a year of living in Rome, studying at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross. Then he entered priestly formation at the Pontifical Roman Major Seminary, the Pope's personal seminary, for service in the Diocese of Charleston. While there, he obtained a licentiate in dogmatic theology from the Gregorian University and also studied French at the Institut Catholique in Paris. Father Smith was ordained deacon by Camillo Cardinal Ruini, the papal vicar for the Diocese of Rome, on the 30th of October, 2004, and priest by Bishop Robert Baker of Charleston on the 23rd of July, 2005. Father Smith spent two years at St. Mary's, right here, as parochial vicar and then administrator pro tem. He then was assigned to St. Peter's Beaufort and Holy Cross St. Helena's Island as parochial vicar and then also administrator pro tem. He then spent two years at St. Francis by the Sea in Hilton Head Island, and in all of his parishes, he had a primary responsibility for Hispanic ministry, chaplaincy, and teaching in parochial schools, and apostolates to the sick. And while in Beaufort and Hilton Head, he also pursued a Master's of Business Administration at the Citadel. And if that wasn't enough school, in 2009, the bishop assigned him to the University of Navarre in Spain, where he defended his doctoral dissertation in dogmatic theology on the thought of the 20th century French Jesuit Henri de Lubac in June of 2012, after which he received the degree, the Doctor of Sacred Theology. Father Smith is a bit of a linguist. He speaks fluently Spanish, Italian, French, and some German, and in his free time is teaching himself Syriac and Arabic. Um, he enjoys reading, kickboxing, and music, and he's a member of the Church Music Association of America and contributes regularly to the Chant Cafe blog. He is also a member of the Catholic Theological Society of America, is a speaker on sacred music, liturgy, theology, and catechesis. And in 2013, he was elected to the Society for Catholic Liturgy. And in 2014, he was received into the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem as chaplain. And in 2015, Bishop Guglielmoni appointed Father Smith as the pastor of Prince of Peace and Taylors. So I am happy to have our second speaker, Father Christopher Smith. Well, now that I know that I have all these priests and their parents who live in my parish, then some envelopes are going to go out really soon from the finance council. So. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who 
do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his first followers a question that at some point, practically every single person on planet Earth has to answer. Who is Jesus? And who is Jesus for me. And how you answer that question and how closely you live your life in conformity with the way that you answer that question, that is going to change absolutely everything. For the Word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, remember that Peter's answer to that question was, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, I would wager that probably every single person who is in Gallivan Hall today, we would all answer the same way, right? We answer with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is a profession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know, that's not just some kind of dry scientific statement of fact. It is a response to a word received in faith by an open heart and an open mind. Right? But that word and our response to it is something which pierces. It separates, it sets apart. Once you truly make that profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, then you're going to be different in some way. And your life is never going to be the same. Now, you you cannot swing a cat in Greenville, South Carolina, pardon that infelicitous expression, without hitting a Baptist church, right? (laughs) So how many of you in the room are current or former Baptist of some sort or another? Okay, fantastic. How is that possible in Greenville? But there we go. Okay. Remember that, uh, and Catholics do this now too, but this was a thing that every single person in Greenville County of a certain age remembers, is in the summer you go to vacation Bible school, right? And I was eight years old in vacation Bible school when the preacher asked us to close our eyes and raise our hands if we wanted to know Jesus, Me, 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 I want to know Jesus, right? Now, of course, Jesus had always been a familiar figure in my life. I mean, you cannot grow up in the Christ-haunted South and not know who Jesus is. It's just impossible. My earliest memories were of mom singing Negro spirituals. Now, my family was kind of interesting because I grew up about 10 minutes from here on the west side of Greenville, and uh, when the whole kind of white flight episode happened in the 70s and 80s, my parents were like, well, we're not going to lose. We're not going to leave our home. And so everybody around my family was black. So I thought that we were special because we were the only white people that existed in the world. Right? 
And so I grew up with this whole kind of patrimony of gospel music, basically. And my mom constantly going around the house singing all this. My other memory is of my dad sitting in his lazy boy, as men are wont to do, uh, reading the Bible. This was the house that I grew up in, not far from here. Now, my family was kind of conventionally religious in one sense. Okay? We went to Sunday school, um, sometimes preaching. Right. So when I see these uh, parents who drop off their children at religious education and go, go to Mass, I'm like, huh, yeah, I've seen that before. Right. Uh, and it was all at this Baptist church in a mill village. So if you go out Church Street, you know you have the Dunning community, right? Uh, that was in the days in which Greenville was a textile town. Those uh, little communities were very important. Now, my mom, at a certain point, stopped going to church because the minister made a pass at her. Okay? She was a beautiful woman. But that taught me at an early age that men of the cloth are not always and everywhere men of God. Dad kept going to the same church because he said, you've got to separate the man from the office. And this is my church. This is my spiritual home. And that's where I belong. My mom, however, just stopped going to church. Now they're all a bunch of hypocrites. But she never, ever stopped praying. In fact, I think in her own way, she actually started to pray more. And as she, as I became older, as she became older, she almost became kind of a little bit of a hermit. And so ours was a house of prayer, simplicity. Okay, uh, you know, Father Long and I was talking about you know the Mennonite simplicity. My parents were just not into stuff. Okay, whenever I move, I have U-hauls and U-hauls of books and vestments and all kinds of things. Everything from my parents' house could fit in a box this big. They just didn't do stuff. But there was also a lot of silence, except when mom was singing and dancing, right? So the spoken word and conversation wasn't a thing. We were either singing and dancing or there was just nothing. So it was just kind of interesting. So I, of course, was the nerdy kid who wanted to do nothing but read. Okay? Um, think about if you grow up in Greenville, then your true religion is actually either Clemson or Carolina, right? <laughs> Baptist Catholic, no, it's not nothing compared to that. And so our family was a football family. So it was Carolina High School on Friday, Clemson on Saturday, the Cowboys on Sunday. Uh, and so my parents would get so into this and screaming and yelling at the TV and going to something. I just want to go and read my Bible across the way so I don't get caught up into the madness. But with all of that desire to know Jesus... I raised my hand in that vacation Bible school because, by God, I was going to figure out who this Jesus was. Right? He was a riddle that I wanted to figure out. That is when the plan of salvation was explained to me. Now, I don't know whether I accurately understood what I was told, but eight-year-old me understood the following. Jesus died for your sins. And if you believe in him, you will be saved from an eternity of punishment in hell. And once you're saved, you are always saved. Oh, and by the way, you have to be baptized. Now, that was the part that got me. Okay, I had flunked out of swim school when I was young because I developed an irrational fear of water that at the age of 42, I'm just now beginning to get over. Okay. <laughs> The thought of being plunged underwater where I couldn't breathe was almost a deal breaker until I realized that if I could be a brave boy, then it would mean heaven for me. 
As I prepared for baptism on August 31st, 1986, I started asking questions of all the adults around me. Who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he kind of half and half? Does it depend on what day of the week it is or what form of existence? You know, what is it? What is baptism? And why do I need it? I'm going to die if I go underwater. Why do I need this? Right? What does it mean to believe? And how does that save you from hell? Now, remember that when you're listening to hour-long sermons from the book of Revelation, right? The four horsemen of the apocalypse and all these fun things. And trying to use different colored markers to guide your Bible study. Okay? I would put the you know, people in yellow and then places in red. I was really a nerd from a very early age. <laughs> so the answer to these questions became an obsession. Now I knew, and I, don't, I can't tell you how I knew this, but I knew that I was meant to be a preacher. Although I was devastated to invite my friends over to the house to hear me preach on the front porch so I could unfold the plan of salvation for them. And nobody came. <laughs> Can't imagine why. So this is like super exciting for me to see all these people. <laughs> but as I asked more questions, not only did I have more and more, but I couldn't understand why is it nobody could give me a straight answer? Okay. okay, so if Jesus is God, and God is one, and truth is one, then why couldn't I get the same answer on all of these questions? How was I ever supposed to figure out who Jesus was for me? That is when I passed through my first intellectual crisis of faith. Now, growing up, I spent most of my weekends at the Greenville County Library, right behind here. And so I started to read about Buddhism, and I actually practiced yoga and Zen meditation. I still can't fit my leg behind my head, so, but we try. Okay. And I don't know if my chakras ever got realigned, but I do know that there is no possible way that I could deny Jesus in some shape, form, or fashion. And so I started to read about church history. So how do, how do I find the answer to these questions? Like, what is all this? And that's when I discovered the painful disunity among Christians and how there were different kinds of Baptists. And there, there were Lutherans and Presbyterians and Latter-day Saints. Now, there was a dilapidated bookstore on Whitehorse Road with uh, this guy who had had half of his face burn off in an accident. And he had, I mean, this place was completely falling apart. And I would go in there all the time. Like, Ooh, what are the treasures I'll find today? Um, and I remember going in there and um, the guy who was the kind of owner of the store was always like, who's this random kid who comes in and like goes out with his huge stacks of books about the weirdest possible things? That was me. But in that bookstore on Whitehorse Road, I found two things, a Catholic version of the Bible and a catechism written by, of all people, Donald Wuerl, the now retired Archbishop of Washington. Okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. So, why were all of these extra books in the Bible? And who gets to decide? Who are the Catholics to put in all this extra stuff? Or, well, who are we to take out all this stuff? Like, how does this happen? Now, while this was going on, I also came across another book that was to change my life forever. 
1979 Book of Common Prayer of the Episcopal Church. Okay, who are my current or former Anglicans in the room? So a few. So okay, cool, excellent, nice. Now I had developed this crazy idea. I thought I was so original, right? So you know, so I've discovered something extremely interesting that no one has ever found before. Wrong. Um, that we should somehow try to enact events in the life of Jesus. Right. I remember seeing news reports from the Holy Land about Palm Sunday, right? And reporting Tom Brokaw from Jerusalem and it's Palm Sunday and all this kind of stuff. And so I still remember uh, my parents, poor thing, I mean, they had to think I had entirely lost my mind, but standing out in the front yard with a crepe myrtle branch in my hands, singing my own made up songs to the King of Glory. And so when I came across the Book of Common Prayer, I came across this revolutionary idea that Christians actually said prayers and did all kinds of rites and ceremonies together. And there was more to Christian life than just an hour-long sermon every Lord's Day. So, I love that. Um, I saved my allowance, $5 a week. It took me a little bit of time to save up my money to get that nice leather version of the Book of Common Prayer. So I saved my allowance. And you would think that I had found the Holy Grail, right? I was so excited. So I begged my parents to take me to the Episcopal Church. But my newfound romance in Canterbury did not last long because I was reading the Catholic Catechism at the same time. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. John chapter 6 was the ultimate riddle to solve. Okay, well, he says, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and life. He says, I'm a door, I'm the good shepherd, all those things. Symbols, right? Okay. Well, I knew that it couldn't be just a symbol or the Jews would have walked away. And I wanted the real thing. When I came across Article 28 of the Articles of Religion in the Book of Common Prayer, transubstantiation is a vain thing repugnant to the Word of God. I said, no, we're done. That's it. I knew that I had to be a Catholic. The second part of Matthew 16, after the who do you say that I am bit, became of supreme importance. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I came across the hard historical fact that the church founded by Christ wasn't divided. It was his followers who were divided off from that church. And that the church that had the Eucharist, the real presence, had been there all along. Now remember, at this point, I had never met a Catholic in my life. Never met one. I had never been in a Catholic church before. Yet I was reading the Summa Theologiae of St. Thomas Aquinas. I had no clue what I was doing, but I was reading it. So, And Loss and Gain and Conscience, Consensus, and the Development of Doctrine of soon-to-be St. John Henry Newman. And so I declared myself to be a Roman Catholic and engaged in trench warfare with my parents until they relented to take me to Mass once to get it out of my system. Okay. I mean, I'd already been through all these other religions, right? So they figured, ah, eh, this will last a couple weeks and we'll be over. So I walked into St. Mary's Greenville shortly after my 12th birthday. 
And as soon as I walked into the building, I knew that I had to be a Catholic and a priest. Now, I started noticing, uh, and some of you heard this story before, um, I started noticing that people would come in and they'd do this weird thing with their knees. I'm like, what are they doing, right? So I'm like, okay. So I'm like looking around. I'm like, well, every person before they went to the pew did this little knee bobby thing. And so I'm like, okay, well, when in Rome, I guess. And, okay, fine. So, okay. The problem was it was the tower entrance. It was that pew right in the tower entrance at St. Mary's. And so this, but I was doing it backwards, right? Because... I don't know, you just kneel in some direction. Who knows? I have no idea. And so this woman was coming into the door of the tower entrance and didn't see me and tripped over me and fell into the... What the hell are you doing? I have no idea. That was my introduction to the Catholic Church. That's when my dad put his foot down. The Baptist pastor scheduled an intervention, and I was told, the priest will molest you. To which I responded, if that's your argument, you don't have an argument. In point of fact, both the pastor and the parochial vicar of St. Mary's at that time would be involved in accusations of child abuse. And I thank God every day that he spared me what other children had to undergo at their hands. It is a very terrifying thing to think about. That was my introduction to the Catholic Church. And from the very beginning, I knew that sin was not going to be absent from this church that I had chosen. My father forbade me to speak of Catholicism ever again. And in a rare moment of spiritual crisis and teenage angst, worst possible combination, right? I literally thought I was going to die if I did not receive the Eucharist. It was so incredibly overwhelming and powerful. I'm like, I I can't, I can't do this without the body and blood of Christ. It is impossible. And I don't want to do this without being able to receive the Eucharist. I prayed for a way out, you know, to to figure out all of this. On Easter Sunday, my poor mother, um, she couldn't find her pearls to go to church. You know, looking around and it knocks on the door and I'm kneeling with my mom's pearls in my hands trying to pray the rosary because I didn't have a rosary, right? She's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm praying the rosary, mother. So she's like, I need those. I'm like, fine. They took away even my rosary that wasn't a rosary. Okay. I marched up to my father, and I quoted the scriptures to him. Thou shalt obey God rather than men. I was determined to die a martyr in my own house. (laughs) Dad could have done that, so. Then betray the Catholic faith. Now, on Christmas Day 2017, I gave my father his first communion as a Catholic. It's a wonderful thing. And he received the Eucharist that I thought I would die without every week until he died on the Feast of the Sacred Heart this year. On June the 6th, 2008, I celebrated Mass at the foot of my mother's hospital bed at St. Francis and touched the precious blood to her lips as she received both her first and last communion, food for her journey, the culmination of a desire that she had for years to be a Catholic, 
Within an hour, she too had passed to her Lord and Savior. The Eucharist is what really brought me to the Catholic Church. And the Eucharist is why I stay. 28 years after I was given my first communion and confirmation by a man who died suspended from the priesthood for being a pedophile, I have not lost one iota of the power of the sacraments of the church. I found Jesus, the Jesus that I was looking for, in the church and in the sacraments. In the sacraments, he's not just present in my memory by an individual act of faith. The sacraments are not things. They're not human rites of passage or mere natural acts of the virtue of religion. They are the action of Jesus Christ. And they take place within the body of Christ, the church. You know, St. Jean-Marie Vianney, the patron saint of parish priest, once said, if we truly understood the Mass, we would die. We really would, if we really understood what was going on at Mass. And to this day, I often have to celebrate Mass without really focusing too hard on the meaning behind what is going on the other side of the veil of ritual, because I just wouldn't be able to function, right? The gift of tears is not something that ever comes to me, except somehow when Jesus Christ in the Eucharist is involved. Who do you say that I am? When I raise the sacred host at Mass, I look at what my senses tell me is bread, and I can say, my Lord and my God. I don't have to remember what he did for me in Calvary 2,000 years ago and believe it was all for me. The body of the Savior, offered as a sacrifice on the cross for my sins, is made present in my hands as a priest. And the fruit of that sacrifice I give to Christ's body, the church, in Holy Communion. It is all too real. It is all too present. And it's all happening right now as eternity breaks upon the present with a presence that can enlighten the darkest night. That's why I am convinced that the way forward in this dark night of crisis that the Catholic Church is going through is to be found in the Eucharist. When we are plunged into the Paschal Mystery, into the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus at baptism, we are conformed to the image and likeness of Christ by becoming his body, the church. And that same body gathers around a table to celebrate what is memorial of the past, presence in the now, and the foreshadowing of the future in the Mass. The body of Christ receives the body of Christ, and so we become what, or rather who, we receive. If God reveals his true nature to be love, remember John, then we become the love we receive in the Eucharist. But only if we allow ourselves to be transformed by that encounter. Now, I know that some of you have heard that there was a Pew Research report, right, that recently stated that 43% of Catholics believe that the bread and wine are symbolic. 
and also that this reflects the position of the church. Even among the most observant group of Catholics, roughly one-third, 37%, don't believe that the communion in communion bread and wine actually become the body of Christ, including 23% who don't know the church's teaching and 14% who know the church's teaching and don't believe it. That's shocking. Now, when I hear this, I can't say this during a sermon, but there we go. I think of Flannery O'Connor, who uh, was at one of these wonderful literary gatherings, you know, lots of intelligentsia, all of this. And we're talking about the Eucharist and some, I forgot who it was, who was, uh, you know, gassing on. But, oh, the Eucharist is such a lovely symbol. Well, if it's a symbol, then to hell with it. I told my people at Mass, I said, do you think I'm going to give up wife and children and, and, and my own, uh, you know, bank accounts and all that kind of stuff for Wonder Bread? Really? Seriously? What, 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 why? Why? There are many voices that say, well, you know, we just need better catechesis. And I agree with them. There are others who say that, you know, we have far too many Catholics who are catechized but not evangelized. Namely, that they know stuff about their religion, but they don't know Jesus, who is the object of the act of faith. I'm not so sure our level of catechesis in some places is high enough to warrant even that observation. But here's the thing. Catholics are more educated than ever. And we have access to more resources than ever before. So it's kind of like there's this great amnesia that has settled over the church. And, you know, we can talk all we want about bad religious education, immoral clergy, doctrinal confusion at the level of the hierarchy, a culture of mendacity among priests. We can identify any number of very serious issues and problems facing the church. But how do we move forward? The amnesia that as a church is strangling our faith can only be overcome by a great awakening. For Catholics to remember once again whose and who we are. Now, we can do that in many different ways. Right? You know, there's lots of talk about structural change and policy emendation and improved efforts at preaching the good news. And all that's great and it all has its place. But unless this is all preceded by and lived within a profound spiritual conversion, none of that's going to last long. Mother Teresa once was asked what needed to change in the church. And she responded, you and me. When every single one of us who has been redeemed by the Lamb of God turns away from sin and takes ownership of the faith delivered us by the saints, that is how the face of Christ can become more visible in the life of his body, the church. The call to holiness is not an excuse for us to be all Haiti and judgmental on people, right? To produce more division. There's plenty of that. We don't need any more. The call to holiness is for us to remember our dignity as God's beloved children. And then take up the cross in whatever way divine will decrees that looks like for us. And by it, find our salvation. Thank you.
who was married by a priest, who then baptized children born in marriage, and then was expelled from the priesthood from the lust of children. Is that in any way to go any of the sacraments I received? Is the question. Which I would add, even if the sacraments are not valid, how does that affect the spiritual life of that family? Right, right. You know, one of the most beautiful aspects of the doctrine on the sacraments is remember how we talked about they're not human, they're not things, right? They're not human actions. They're the action of Christ. And because of that, um, baptism is Christ purifying, right? Anointing is Christ healing. Confession is Christ forgiving. The human instrument is irrelevant in one sense as far as grace is concerned. So that means that you know, the sacrament is received validly, right? Um, now, does that mean that that introduces into the body of Christ a problem? Yes, right? It means that that should call us to deeper identification with the grace of the sacraments, to pray and to sacrifice for one another, you know, bear each other's burdens, right? We bear each other's burdens by, uh, by allowing ourselves to be transformed by the grace that we receive in the sacraments. So does that make sense? So yeah, it's valid. Remember Augustine talked about this in the Donatist controversy, where there were people who were saying, well, you know, if you weren't at this level, then you know, none of this made any sense. And he was the one who said, but I, Augustine, right, am not the one doing this. This is Christ who is celebrating the sacraments. And that is how our Lord preserves his church. Um, because if the church and the sacraments depended on the guys in black, then forget it, right? Um, and I'm not even talking about like necessarily any kind of moral, moral failings or anything like that. It's just the very fact that all of us are in this together. Remember Augustine says, you know, I'm a Christian with you and a bishop for you, right? Uh, we do that in a way in which we together um, can support each other, right, in our prayers and uh, in our penance and reparation, uh, and in doing so, uh, heal the body of Christ, even when other members are weak. And that's the grace that we get from that encounter with Christ in the sacraments. Next question. I hope most Catholic parishes sponsor mission trips the way Protestant churches do. Mm, okay. Well, I think that you know the priorities uh, in uh, Catholic parishes and some Protestant uh, places are different. Um, Catholic parishes tend to be very institution-minded, and it's very easy for us to think in terms of maintenance of the institution rather than mission. Um, also, um, when you think about the budgeting of a, of a parish, right? I had no clue how any of this worked before I became a priest, by the way. Um, you know. So often we think in terms of how do we keep our people happy with what, we're, with what we're doing and nurture them instead of outside. I think that that's a problem. I think that's something that we need to kind of think about and, and change for the purpose of evangelization. Um, I, the, the thing that, how do I put this? I, I may step on some people's toes here. But the thing that I always find a little bit kind of patronizing is what I call poverty tourism, where, you know, you get people who are like, oh, we're going to go, we're going to be all helpful, right? So you have all these, you know, rich people who swoop in on their jets and everything, and then, oh, well, we're going to help all of you people. And sometimes that is actually a help. Um, but it should always be done from a place of real openness to cultural encounter and a real love for those people. And when that's missing, then I think that that becomes a problem. I think about, you know, sometimes like even getting like teenagers involved in stuff like this. I think from a, one point of view, it's important for them to realize, you know, 
life is not, you know, uh, you know, all roses all the time. Uh, and it's important for them to see that. But at the same time, we, I think it's important to avoid that kind of thing. Does that make sense? Or? in these conversations, so yeah. Well, no, I mean, you can say that, you know, that I was saved by the Lord Jesus, right? I mean, because we are saved by the Lord Jesus. Um, the question, of course, they're not really getting at that, are they? Um, you have to, and that's why it's important to say, well, what do you mean by that? And when you scratch beneath the surface, sometimes they have no clue what, what they mean by that. Uh, and then they all mean different things. Um, I think, okay, well, what do you mean by salvation? What do you mean by, by all of those things? And then kind of coach them through all of that so that they understand that, you know, we do believe that Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. What some, some Protestants get wrapped around the axle about is, you know, where does my personal responsibility kind of go with that? Um, and so then they tend to be like, okay, well, I received the Lord Jesus on such and such a date by a profession of faith, and so I am good to go from there, right? Whereas we say, okay, salvation is a lifelong process in that sense that begins with that act of faith and baptism um, and then ends when we're in heaven with, with God. Um, if you kind of, you know, pry them away from the uh, one moment in time kind of thing to get them to understand that that, and then you can say Jesus is outside of space and time, right? So therefore, I don't need to identify that particular thing. God is working his purpose out in me and I am cooperating with him in doing that. Father Smith's reply on <laughs> the round table has started. Yeah. <laughs> Are you saved is not a question about any very problem. It's a profoundly unscriptural question. Second, most Protestants think that justification and salvation are exactly the same thing, that they are coextensive realities. And that's not enough. Justification, by grace and faith in Christ, must be followed by sanctification, the works of the new creation. Otherwise, I have a feeling to justify. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, says the Lord, but only he who does the will of my Father. When you add those things, the good points are all there, there's a long list of responses you can give the nonsensical question, as you can say. Okay. So. Finally, Father, at any point in your journey, did you ever not believe in God, or did you find yourself even seriously questioning 
questioning the existence of God. Okay, now I'm going to rock your mind. Okay. There, I can literally say there was one moment in which I'm like, wait a minute, what is this? And you're going to be very surprised when this actually happened. Um, again, growing up in the South, Jesus was always part of everything. The church, you became a Catholic. I remember studying with the Jesuits um, <laughs> at the Gregorian University and being in my class on the Trinity. And uh, sitting here listening to all of this speculative theology and thinking, how do you people know any of this nonsense? Right? And it was terrifying because I thought, this is all, this is all made up. This is all, this, no, no. The only time ever in my life that I had that. And I remember, I mean, I, I'm a Catholic, I'm a seminarian, I'm completely and utterly seized by fear that God doesn't exist. This is all nonsense. I'm wasting my life on this. And so, of course, as a good Catholic boy, I went to confession, right? So, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been one week since my last confession. I don't think I believe in God. And the priest was like, okay. And he literally said, you'll be fine. And I said, I don't think so. I said, I'm really struggling here. Like, I, and I tried to explain the whole situation. He said, keep doing what you're doing. This too shall pass. And it did. Um, but the actual academic study of theology, you know, we, we talked about how, like, you know, the, the, in certain sectors of evangelicalism, there is this kind of sense of, you know, book learning is bad for you, right? I got all I need in the book, the good book, right? Um, and so when I, once I started down that road, I saw how, wait a minute, that really could be the case. And you, know, you see you know, people who are biblical scholars, who are atheists, you know, fantastic scholars of history, but they don't believe. They don't have a living relationship with Christ. And so I had that moment which was utterly terrifying. Um, and I went to the chapel and I threw myself on my knees before the Blessed Sacrament and said, Lord, I believe, I think, help my unbelief. And then it passed and I've never thought about it again. Um, but it is something that uh, has given me a great sense of compassion and patience for people who are at various points in their faith journey, especially when they go through those moments. I'm like, okay, yeah, I can, I can understand that. I'm with you. We'll work through this together. You'll be fine. So. <laughs> Thank you.